Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I certainly see many familiar faces, and it's nice to know that after a day full of lectures, we have still so many of you who were interested enough in fine printing to sit through yet another one. When Terry asked me over the phone what the title of my talk here tonight would be, of course he had to have it right then because he had to have the program printed right away. I answered right off the top of my head, um, why buy fine press books? It seemed a catchy enough title and I thought, well, this will be easy to prepare too. After all, it's something I ought to know something about, having devoted a bit of time to it in the past decade. I didn't realize that within this simple question lies the roots of the entire raison d'etre of the fine press movement. And uncovering those roots has led me on a long and rather difficult path of questioning why exactly it has seemed rewarding to me to devote more than a decade of my life to describing and making known to the world fine press printing. Allow me to lead you along some of that path. It will be abridged, not, I won't take you over the long difficult part. And if I can find my notes, I will, in the right order, I will continue. Um, can't find the start. Hold on a minute here. Well, I can't find the first part of my lecture. I maybe have it right in here. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just in case you thought I hadn't prepared. <laughs> it's actually very simple, and I would have said it anyway, believe me, if, even if I hadn't found my notes. Because uh, to start, we take the question, why buy fine press books? And we examine some of the possible answers that might be proffered. There are those who will say, if you spend a lot of money on a book, it should hold great literature. Give me Chaucer, Shakespeare, Moby Dick. But this is a dangerous precept by which to purchase books. It can lead to the illustrated classics syndrome, an endless search for ever more elaborate editions of the same few texts. Unfortunately, this syndrome is pandemic in our society, though I trust no one here is infected. The infectious agent seems to be the glossy color advertisements of beautifully colored leather bindings that appear in all the magazines ranging from time, and I actually saw it in a magazine called Coal Age. <laughs> So that all those coal mining executives out there might perhaps be afflicted with this infectious agent and be impelled to lay out hundreds, even thousands of dollars to buy what I call great bow-wows. This is my acronym for great books of the Western world. Wow. They come in all varieties. They're, and they're always great. There are great classics, there are great novels, there are great works of history, there are the greatest works of the solar system. <laughs> well, of course, there is really little reason to buy expensive reprints of classics of literature unless it fulfills a function or a role that is not possible not to be fulfilled by 
a simple penguin paperback or one of the excellent reprint series like the Library of America. In order to be valid, a reprint must allow the reader to see the text in some new way, either textually, with a new, more accurate edition, with scholarly apparatus, with a new introduction, with a translation, a new translation, or it must present a new and different perspective graphically on the text, either by typographic arrangement or by means of illustration. There are some presses in America that have excelled of late at giving us fresh views of classic texts. The one that leaps immediately to mind, of course, is the Arion Press Moby Dick with Perry Mosier's small illustrations of the instruments and accoutrements of the whaling trade. These create an authentic technical setting for Melville's novel. There are some that find the illustrations rather bloodless and off-putting, lacking in drama, but I think it's a valid approach. And certainly this technical quality is an important element in Melville's writing. Then, uh, logically, we proceed to another uh, classic work from the Penny Royal Press, Alice in Wonderland. Who needs another edition of Alice in Wonderland? But Barry Mosier, once unleashed from the restrictions of the technical style of illustration that he had to do for Moby Dick, produced a radically new perspective on Alice in Wonderland. And I don't think that there has been an illustration of Alice since Tenniel that has been emblazoned as effectively on the public consciousness. In Mosier's Alice, we do not see Alice. It, rather, we see Wonderland as Alice saw it, and it is much more bizarre and frightening than anything Tenniel gave us. Another example, Walt Whitman. How many editions have we seen? And yet, there was a brilliant, there is a brilliant poet and printer in California, William Everson, who in the last book from his Lime Kiln Press, took the prose introduction to Leaves of Grass and using his own vision as a printer and poet, like a skilled lapidary, he recut and reset the prose as poetry, revealing the poetic facets and uncovering the strong poetic rhythms underlying all of Whitman's work, even his prose. I could go on multiplying examples. Uh, Chelone Day Press in Massachusetts producing some really interesting work with uh, Poe's The Raven and The Black Cat, and there are others. These are the valid so-called fine presentations of the classics for our time as we find emblazoned in these ads. These are the valid works and not the great illustrated bow-wows dressed in fake gold stamping, cheap sheep, and watered silk. Then there are those that will say, well, if you spend a lot of money on a book, it should be in the avant-garde. Give me only previously unpublished works by modern authors. Give me Updike, Bellow, Roth, and Oates. But here, too, pitfalls await the unwary book buyer. Another deadly acquisitive infection may strike. I call it sinusitis the overwhelming compulsion to acquire signatures of living authors, no matter how trivial the writing to which they are attached. There are authors which uncover obscure speeches, minor essays, puerile bits of juvenilia, and these are always produced in editions limited just enough to excite the fevered instincts of the sinusitis sufferer. This calculated fabrication of modern rarities, I believe, is a betrayal of the finest traditions of private press as a life force in modern literature. The highest function of, fine and private, of the fine and private press is the discovery and publication of les avants before they become a guard. 
before their signature is worth more than yours and mine. The, the stellar example of this in American fine press printing is, of course, Harry Duncan's Cummington Press, who published uh, Wallace Stevens and William Carlos Williams and E.E. E. Cummings long be before they became the venerated poets that they are now. And one can only speculate what the state of modern literature would be today without the activity of the small independent presses that were operated by Americans in Paris in the 1920s. Presses like Black Sun, Hours Press, Three Mountains Press, and Beaumont. They published the early works of Pound, of Hemingway, Hilda Doolittle, D.H. Lawrence, and of course the difficult and unconventional works of James Joyce, which are now classics, but at that time would not be touched by any ordinary publisher. Hugh Ford, the, the chronicler of that movement, has said, their printing and publishing provided more than just an outlet for works not wanted by ordinary publishers. The fact of their existence symbolized the protest of a whole contingent of writers who opposed what they considered the over-commercialization of the established publishing houses. Perhaps more important than the 100 to 500 copies of the books that they publish was the shared creativity involved in jointly preparing a book for publication, unquote. Those small and private presses could and did cultivate an intimacy between authors and publishers, an atmosphere of liberal experiment and creativity. And today in America, more than in any other country, this spirit of mutual creativity, of liberal experimentation, continues to exist among fine presses. And it is the duty of the book buyer to discover and to patronize and to nurture those presses, thus enabling them to nurture literature. But then we have the difficult choice. Which presses? It's a difficult question. It requires study and observation. And one asks, why then look for fine presses? Why not just look for good literature in whatever form? And yes, that's, that's a valid way to collect, or a valid way to buy books. But I believe that the existence of fine presses often, but not always, simplifies the search for good literature. After all, what is publishing? It is actually akin to mining. And those of you who know my husband will appreciate this simile. He works for a mining company. Like mining, publishing is a process of finding the valuable from among vast quantities of the ordinary, extracting, refining it, polishing it, polishing the material until it is fit to offer to the public. And like the mining executive, publishers too are driven by market forces. Instead of selling copper for the wire market, producing clay for the paper market, mercury for batteries, publishers respond to the demand for gothics for the romance market overweight cats for the humor market, thinner thighs for everyone. There is one big difference between publishing and mining. A good publisher can decide for him or herself what is a precious substance. He or she can, like the alchemist, invent or create value through exercise of the individual taste in, in the process of editorial selection. Now there is no publishing free of market forces because the very definition of publishing is to make public or offer on the public market. But I believe that the freedom of editorial function 
exists perhaps to a greater degree in fine press publishing than in any, any other kind, because the audience to be satisfied is the smallest. But neither is too much freedom desirable. Otherwise, we'd have to, excuse me, we'd have to take seriously every self-published pamphlet that's round out on the neighborhood offset instant printer. This is the beauty of buying fine press printing. It provides its own economic exigencies. The editor-publisher is usually also the printer. He or she is saying to the prospective buyer, not just, here is something of sufficient literary interest that I saw fit to get it printed, but instead, he or she is saying, here is something of what I felt to be of such great literary importance that I was impelled to publish it in a fit way. I was impelled to invest my labor, my graphic taste, and to invest the expense of fine materials to place this work in a fit setting. Thus, Fine press publishing has two additional filters. The investment of money and craftsmanship to give us some assurance of the quality of the literary product. To be sure the filter is imperfect, the success of the selection always depends ultimately on the, liter on the editorial skills of the printer and the publisher. And I will be the first to admit that there has been much dross dressed up in handmade paper and sold as important literature. But that's where the discerning book buyer must step in and apply negative market force. As a result of good editorial skills, we find that there are a number of successful presses producing excellent modern literature in fine editions in America today. Beeler, Copper Canyon, Nadja, Meadow, Abattoir, Windover, Ives Street, and etc. I could I could go on naming them. So we've examined buying fine books from the point of view of literature, both classic and modern. Then there are those who will say, if you spend a lot of money on a fine book, it should be artistic. Give me the book as an art form, conceived and executed by an individual artist, untrammeled by the exigencies of the gallery system or the rare book seller. Give me the artist book, pure artistic expression, unrestricted by any imposed text or by what some Philistine printer thinks should be illustrated. I see this attitude as a symptom, a symptom of the death of the book as we have known it, and its resurrection in a greatly fragmented form with many diverse functions beyond the traditional ones of information, instruction, and entertainment, all functions that will eventually be served in large part by electronic media. Meanwhile, the carcass of the book form is being torn apart and shredded by all those seeking to possess it and make it theirs, and the first in line to possess the carcass of the book form are the artists. Now, artists have always laid claim to a piece of the book, but their claim was almost li always limited. Even great artists at the School of Paris, like Picasso, Matisse, Bonnard, who carried the book to, heights, to the heights of the art realm were usually circumscribed by certain conventions, certain formats. The book was a sort of cage or frame that allowed these fine artists to exhibit their virtuosity in drawing or lithograph, or lithography or etching. The text was a scaffold on which their art was displayed. Today, the artist will not be caged. They demand the book entire, free, unencumbered, open to their personal expression, whatever that may be. And every year, 
They present us with something more outrageous and unconventional, and they call it a book. Here they say, take this poor bundle of tarred and feathered leaves. <laughs> this is a book. And the old line book people, the traditional book designers, the librarians, the printers, they rally around and repel these challenges to their cherished ages-old methods, forms, and functions. They beat back the artists screaming, this is not a book, this is not a book. But there's no use screaming. The carcass of the book has already been resurrected, and the artist's book is one of those incarnations, along with the video book, and the office computer set laser printed book and many other forms of the book that we will doubtless encounter in the years ahead. The question then remains, should we buy these artists' creations and admit them to traditional libraries along with the Doves and the Ashen Dean? Or should we banish them to art galleries and to the museums of modern art? The answer is yes. We should buy these books, but with caution, with selectivity. As I see it, the major danger of this form of bookmaking is the divorcement of the book form from the text and the emphasis of personal expression at the expense of communication. Communication is integral to the idea of the book and the absence of communication is antithetical to it. Yet artists are straying further and further from the basic, meaningful communication. And I would like to illustrate the extremes to which this can be carried by reading you a description from a catalog of Canadian artists' books. The object illustrated is a bound and wrapped bundle of sheets of paper. The artist says, quote, only the edges of the books are visible to the viewer. The page itself, or the edge of the page, is the conveyor of the message, but these messages are obscured by the wrappings and bindings. These books are meant to evoke words, as a poem is meant to evoke silence. A book that is usually seen as an object or artifact used for storing and conveying words is here presented without that use, but instead as a symbol to suggest an excluded element, words. <sighs> words are dear to us all. And so I would say, my friends, that this type of symbolic sculpture may well be called a book, and it will be called a book, but it belongs in a museum and not in a library. Just as those who are working in a donut shop are told to keep their eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. So those of us who are building libraries should keep our eye on the text and the effectiveness with which it is communicated and not on how well the format conforms to our preconceived notions of bookness. And once again, I have to say that I believe that the fine printer is best equipped to be the conservator of the text and to ensure that communication because he or she has the most thorough knowledge of all the various crafts that go into that complex object we call a book. Typography and printing and paper and book binding, each one a craft in its own right to be studied for, for years and decades. It is this ability to explore objectively the craftsmanship in bookmaking that most often distinguishes the printer-produced book from the artist's personal exploration of the book form. The primary concern of the modern fine printer is to produce a more perfect reading instrument, to create an environment for reading, not just to ease the reading, but to enhance the reading experience. And there is sound precedent for this. I can go back to a venerable venerable example. The Kelmscott Chaucer, produced by William Morris. I think it can be seen as the first modern progenitor of this approach. Because if you look at it, you can ask yourself, what is remarkable about this book? 
not just its innovative, innovative type design, not just the superb illustrations, not just the wonderful texture of the paper and the perfect printing impression, although all those are remarkable enough. What is extraordinary is the way that Morris was able to orchestrate all those elements to create an atmosphere of romanticized, idealized medievalism within, what, within which one can enjoy the reading of Chaucer, or even just enjoy the idea of Chaucer. This philosophy of bookmaking, I believe, is coming to its fullest fruition, its fullest fruition in the late 20th century. Because what we have are printers, enough printers who are grounded in tradition, but willing to violate the time-honored rules of typography to stretch and innovate the structure and the formats of the book to heighten the reading experience. The first signs of this I saw when I first started fine print back in 1975. It was again a man who I've mentioned before, William Everson, who as poet as well as printer understood how poetry should be read. Moreover, he, William Everson, was printing the work of a poet he venerated, Robinson Jeffers, and he was determined to see to it that the reader would come to his book and read his poetry undisturbed by the broken lines that are usually required because of the narrow page and the long lines of Jeffers' poetry. However he, however, he found that this caused problems. When he had his nice long line in his oblong format, he found that he had a long blank on the left side. And this wide expanse of white on the left, he believed, disturbed the reading. So what did he do? He solved the problem by deliberately offsetting the text of the previous poem that was, would have been on the previous recto on the verso. So as you read, you get a kind of an echo of the previous poem as you turn the pages. Well, there are some who thought that this was a solution and there are others that thought it was a disaster. Many who said that it was a beautiful book, too bad he ruined it. But there are many who believe that the book worked as a whole and that it provided an unforgettable reading of Jeffers' poems. I'd invite any of you to visit your rare book collection and inspect that volume and decide for yourself. And I think it's important to do that because it is, a, I see it as a kind of a seminal book in the, in the modern fine press movement. It seemed to indicate a kind of break in the dam of typographic tradition. Since that time, there are many more printers who have felt more at liberty to create innovations and invent possibilities and to experiment with the typographic and structural characteristics of the book. I will mention a few, not to imply that all of them were influenced by Everson. There is Jack Stoffaker, of course, whose edition of Phaedrus, I have a slide of, I will show you later, and he tried to experiment with the typographical format of the dialogue and present a way in which it could be read without the annoyance of having the name of each speaker placed in front of a line. There's Claire Van Vliet's Aura, uh, again a groundbreaking book. It was the first one we've seen, at, in this age anyway, that actually used paper as illustration. I don't have a slide of Aura with me today, but I have another paperwork of Janice Press that I can show you. And then there was someone who was quite definitely influenced by uh, William Everson, Richard Biggis, who did the Ode to Typography by Neruda and broke the poem according to the natural stops in the poetry, wherever there was punctuation, creating a pattern on the page. A very interesting typographic device. I have to confess that I don't know whether it really does heighten the reading experience or not. 
And more recently, Michael Gullick of the Red Gold Press has given us ma the uh, Majnun Lila. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Michael, yes? Um, and in this book, not only has he used paper to create an atmosphere in the book, but also has used what some would call violations of the rules of word spacing in order to pace the reader in the enjoyment of the poetry. Such experimentation naturally bears the potential for disaster. The hands that do this sort of work must have thorough grounding in the basic principles of typography and letter forms and book structure. Unfortunately, I think we can expect a spate of incompetent imitators. At their best, such books ask the reader to be a participant in the creation of the text. But in order to do so, one has to give one's attention solely to the text and to the process of reading. This is an active engagement. It is the antithesis of television watching in which images are passively allowed to wash over your mind. Reading these books is a new cultural activity. It is reading as a fine art. Are you a cultured person? Have you taken music appreciation, art appreciation? Get ready for reading appreciation. Terry will be glad to provide, I'm sure. Now, there's one reason to buy fine press books that I have not touched upon, and I actually have it down here as optional, because it's a delicate subject which I'm not really too interested in talking about, and that is money. But I know inevitably that people will ask, should I buy these books? Are they a good investment? And I always like to say, the best bargains in the book world are in the pages of fine print, in the reviews of the books that are offered. Figures on them. Some of them are really startling. But for those few which have risen dramatically in value in the past 10 or 15 years, there will always be vast numbers that are not, not in demand and never will be. But they will always be there for you to read and appreciate if they meet your needs and your tastes as an individual. And here we come to the crux of the matter, the underlying social reason why people should not, not only should, but will buy press books. Because each book is the vision of an individual or a few individuals, and each book is experienced on an individual basis. Contrast this with our experience of mass culture, in which we are all forced by the very fact of our existence in an urbanized society to participate to accept the visual images imposed on us by the mass media and to have our brains filled willy-nilly with meaningless information. Do you doubt that you are a passive victim of mass communications? Then ask yourself certain test questions. Do you know what a gentleman named Michael Jackson wears on his hand? Do you know what grows in a cabbage patch? and I don't mean vegetables. Do you know why you can drink? You can now drink as well as read a classic? Do you know who Stephen King is? If you answered yes to most of those questions, ask yourself again, do I want to know these things? <laughs> If you answer a resounding no three out of four times, you are a passive victim of mass culture. To rescue yourself from this benighted state, 
to satisfy your hidden thirst for meaningful individual communication, intellectually as well as visually, to find some unique perspectives on your world, buy a fine press book and have a good read. Thank you. Slides or questions, or maybe we can have questions and slides at the same time. All right. wondering what press produced this. <laughs> I think this is fun. This, this is, I suppose, what would be equivalent to buying fine printing in the 19th century. This is a totally engaging book. It has a ravishing silk cover. It's called Flowers from Arcadia, and it's hand-painted. Here we are published by John T. White in San Francisco in 1884. And we see our, our lovely hand-painted flowers. I'm sure this is a meaningful reading experience for someone back then. Each one individually hand-painted. I think that's real devotion to craftsmanship. And I, I think it's, it's just kind of fun to look at and, and realize and appreciate how, how much people have enjoyed the aesthetics of bookmaking in many forms for many years. And the funny thing about this book is that along with the hand painting, they seem to throw in these strange little wood engravings that one can really not understand what exactly they're doing there or what relation they have to the text, but they are awfully pretty. Now we get to the real meat and potatoes. An example of modern fine printing from the Janus Press of Claire Van Vliet. One of her less popular books, probably not one that has increased greatly in value, but one that I'm particularly fond of, What the Owl Said. And I particularly like the way she's played with different colors of type and different kinds of typefaces in order to separate the different parts of her story which are told by different people and which have stories within stories. And of course her marvelous graphics, always colorful, simple, expressive. And here we have a recent work of Jack Stoffaker's Greenwood Press. He's known for his presentation of European literature. Here we see how he has worked with illustration. He usually does not like to illustrate his books. He, he depends greatly on the, on the beauty and simplicity of, of type, particularly the Jansen face. But here we have one of his, one of the etchings that he put with these poems that are very suggestive. And he gives the, the reader a little bit of a rest. You have your illustration, then you have a blank page to sort of meditate on it. And here we see how he has presented the bilingual text, the French on the left, and the English on the right, everything perfectly balanced and with the ragged margins helping greatly to provide the white space necessary for restful reading. And now we have the Majnun Lila. And I wonder if I could bother you, Michael, to just tell us a little bit about it, about what you're trying to do here with this book. Yes, well, 
One of my favorite books from Harry Duncan's Abattoir Editions at the University of Nebraska. Again, very simple typography, but really regal. Nothing interferes with your enjoyment of these poems, and the Indian handmade paper is, just provides a perfect atmosphere for them. Again, notice how classic his use of initials. And here we have a work by one of, uh, perhaps I should say, our most notorious California printers, Francis Butler, who you see there in a self-portrait holding a camera. <clears throat> and this work, perhaps, in some minds does not classify as a book because it's really a series of pochoir prints. However, it has a definite sequence and it does have a bookish feel about the way you read it. And it does have a significant text. And I think it's especially interesting because it does something that I mentioned before. It gives you a really unique perspective on the world, on a piece of your own world. It, it just makes you see something. You could walk down the streets of San Francisco and see these two people almost any day of the week. And yet, this is where we're seeing them. This is where I saw them, really, for the first time. Again, just unusual perspectives. And here again is a very early book that, that is early to me when I first became interested in fine printing. The King Library Press and Carolyn Hammer was one of the first printers that responded to my request for press books. And I was immediately taken with it. Here we see how she has taken really um, illustrations from an incanabulum and put them with some coke type and made an edition which is at once modern and yet also very much of the 15th century. Again, Jack Stoffaker, this is the book that I told you about, The Phaedrus, which was one of the pioneering experiments with the reading process in the fine press book. you see that the dialogue is read across the gutter of the page and there's a definite rhythm in reading it. You know automatically who is speaking according to which side of the page you are reading. And here we have the Janus Press again producing an environment for reading, an atmosphere made of paper pulp. Lilac Wind, beautiful poems, and really a lilac wind does echo through these, these pages when you're reading this book. 
and the text is fully integrated with the paper landscape. Here we have the ode to typography, again an, an early experimental book by Richard Biggis. Again you see how he has broken up the poem in a way that provides a certain rhythm in reading, a kind of a staccato rhythm, and I don't know whether Neruda himself would approve of this. But it is interesting as an experiment whether or not you believe it to be successful. Here's a work of the Grabhorn Hoyam Press, which is not, to which not much attention is paid. It, I think, is an interesting example because it combines the Oriental bookbinding and a completely Italian feeling inside the book, and yet the two of them work together perfectly. I also like the way the, the Italian and the English mirror each other with the short lines of his poetry. And again, this is um, a work that was done before Montale won the Nobel Prize. We seem to be heavy on biggest. Here's another uh, recent work of his, Auden, in which he's made a, a very interesting selection of Auden poems and set them with this unchill type, which is perhaps a bit difficult to read, but in a way, slowing the reader, it helps us to enjoy the poetry. And uh, I've just put this in to tell you that there's always room for a new edition of something like the Christmas Carol that we think we've seen a hundred thousand times when it does something different and new and shows it us the text in a new way. This is the Christmas Carol in theatrical form as a script and with new wood engraved illustrations, which I think are quite engaging. And I also like the way he's used this typeface, whose name escapes me right now. Maybe you know it, Abe. Do you recognize that? Is it Scotch Roman? Yeah. Yeah, it's spelled. Yes? Spelled, spelled. And it, it's, it certainly does, I believe, give a real kind of 19th century feeling to the text. And here we have more experimentation with book format, Flatland from Arion Press, in which the ancient, ancient format of the accordion fold is brought into new possibilities and a classic text which was not, which was certainly known to many people but not really very popular Flatland is given a whole new setting and a new appreciation. And now we come to the Ive Street Press, which is one that I mentioned doing nice work with relatively little known poetry. There's nobody, I don't think they've, she's, um, Barbara Cash has really published anybody who's, you would say you'd be dying to get his or her signature. Uh, and yet she always seems to be able to just do a kind of a small gem which provides a really nice setting for a modern poet. Here it is again in, the, in this kind of accordion fold. That's just one sheet that unfolds and, and gives you the poem. And then she's put it with some rare 19th century photographs of cows and just given the whole thing a perfect setting. It's just a totally enjoyable piece of work. Here we have uh, Tracy Davis, a young student, uh, studied in, in Ohio with Bob Tauber, also studied at Mills, and uh, is now launching on her own press, and she is especially fond of Latin literature, and here presents a poem, a, a play 
uh, in a bilingual edition, quite ambitious, I think, for someone who's just starting out. And I, I think this indicates, again, that by observing the broad range of fine press work, no matter what your interest is, you can almost, al almost always find somebody who's doing something, doing the kind of work that you're interested in, that you have some interest in. Here we see it again, um, and the illustrations by Sidney Shafitz are really very, very interesting. Here are the characters. And now we come to one of my favorite books in the world. This is done by Roswitha Quadflieg of the Ramin Press in Germany, who I think is really one of the most talented printers working in the world today, and fortunately seems to have great resources in the way of type. Oh, this is definitely a little bit blurry. Can we, can we adjust that, or do I adjust that here? It may be the slide itself. Yes, it seems to be. It's like if I get the right hand clearer than the left hand is bad. I guess that's the best. Well, I'm sorry that it's so blurry because this is just a superb piece of typography. I mean, it is really incredible what this woman did with, with these several different types of type styles <clears throat> and the different uh, translations of the of the fairy tale are given each given a, a different type she has abundant talent in the field of typography and also does all her own book illustration and her own book design and now we come to something which is <clears> hmm <throat> perhaps a little borderline in, in the way of fine press printing, there are many people who would perhaps uh, hesitate to, to give the, the uh, name fine to this sort of thing. And let me tell you, when I opened the parcel at the fine print office, I found inside a packet of tomato ketchup, a napkin, and a plastic fork and spoon. It was perfect. And we open the inside and we see that the inside is really just as unconventional as the outside. And here we are approaching something which is maybe the furthest extreme of what I called um, reading appreciation or reading as a fine art because really uh, Betsy Davids in her review of this book in fine print calls it sporty reading and I rather like that I think that's what happens you have to have the same concentration uh, but it is a challenge to read this book and it really is clever in the way it uses different colors of type and different typefaces each one of which represents a different character. And when the characters are speaking all at once, you get an overlay. Of the different characters. And when you get to the last bit, when everything is totally confused, this is what you end up with. Um, this is a book of a press that is little known outside of California, it's called Somber Reptiles. And this is a, a, a story, it's a detective story. And this is an author who is not well known. And yet, I think that this work is really interesting as a, a just bizarre example of the genre of the detective story. And this press has really brought this author to the fore by presenting this edition of his story. It's Kill Jim. Here's the title page, and you see these heavy bars, which 
provide a kind of a somber repetition as we go through the book. As you can see, they like to play around with letter forms and number forms. This is the text. And again, it's an interesting typographic device. The text is sunk to the bottom of the page. Each page, as you turn, the, the uh, sort of leftover space is always at the top rather than at conventionally at the bottom. And then this is one of the nicest touches in the book. Let's see if I can focus this a little. Uh, each book has a different collage which gives you a little piece of the text and some wonderful marble paper and some other bits of paper and then the words, kill Jim at the end. And it just, it's a perfect note to end the story. Here's a New York press, the Grenfell Press, a better known poet, Robert Duncan, a well-known poet. And with this book, you can read this book, you feel like you know Robert Duncan when you read this book. And then when I was saying about read a fine press book and get a new perspective on the world, this is one of the books that absolutely gave me a fantastic perspective that I'd never thought I'd see. This is the world as seen from the gutters of London by a crocodile. Now I ask you, would you ask for this? You wouldn't. And yet when you, when you get it, it just gives you just a wonderful lift and a wonderful view of London. <laughs> Whoops. Here's the title page, Crocodile Puddles. It's the new Pyramid Press. And here we see our first crocodile you see them there in the gutter? These are actually photographs that have been heavily silk screened to provide this very high contrast. And the, um, they're sort of integrated into the page with the application of color by hand. It's a wonderful device and it works perfectly. There, there is a crocodile marching up the road of children, four children. And here, is, this is a superb crocodile. You can see how fat he is. And he's riding home and he says, dear mother. Of course, he doesn't have access to a really good typewriter. He just has access to an old fashioned one. And he says, London hard, earth cold, too tired now to hunt meat eat Coke cans, McDonald's cartons, Kentucky fried chicken boxes. Water is black like swallowing putrid snake. Cannot see. Tongue is swollen. Head is burning. Tomorrow, crocodile, return home. It's just, um, and some things that they say I, I, in this, that the crocodile says in this thing just really hit home. I like the way he says, at great noise, cars, speed, trailing, bad breath. And here's another view that you can get by buying a fine press book. I spent the summer in Paris, a view of life in Paris, France, and Paris, Kentucky. This is done by Susan King of the Paradise Press in Los Angeles, who's, I think, doing some of the most innovative and interesting work in the fine press scene in Southern California. Here you see uh, the interlineal way she has worked the text. The Roman type, I believe, is what's going on. Yes, the Roman type is what's going on in Paris. No, the Roman type is what's going on in Kentucky, in Paris, Kentucky, and the italic type is what's going on in Paris, France. And you read the two together, and it just, it's, it's a really unusual effect. I'm trying to fix this a little bit. 
Um, it looks a little blurry, and that's partly also because of the kind of semi-transparent paper on which it is printed, because as you read the book, not only do you get the juxtaposition of what she's saying about Paris, Kentucky, and what she's saying about Paris, France, you also get the illustrations and you get the ghosts of the illustrations that are below it as you read the book. Here is an example of an artist, Eileen Hogan, who obviously excels in watercolor painting and several other art forms, who applies her art to bookmaking, I think, very successfully. She's also done a number of books in which she hand-cut all the letters herself out of linoleum, which I think was quite remarkable. This is her latest effort. And you see the way she has integrated her watercolor paintings with the text. And this is an edition of Kafavi's poetry, very much a Greek flavor to it. And the remarkable thing, I think, is the way she worked out the texture of the English translation and the Greek using Zopf's type in both cases and providing just a you can, you, in looking at this on the screen, you can hardly tell that, oh, excuse me. You can hardly tell that the top part is English and that the bottom part is Greek because the texture has been so perfectly combined. And here's another little one. Again, uh, a poet not known, delightful poet, three little poems, light, fluffy, very affecting, and very nicely presented by the Meadow Press of San Francisco. Well, it's after seven. I, I do have a few more slides, but I, I think that we've reached our capacity. And so I'll let you all go now. And thank you very much. Join our speaker in room 523 for conversation in a glass of wine.